So two servants, a king, and a lesson about forgiveness. If you've been attending Brown's Chapel for quite a while, you will recognize these four things to be true. Here's the first one. You've either hurt someone in the church or you've been hurt by someone in this church. Do I get an amen on that? <laughs> Two. To be hurt by someone in the church can be very painful. Am I right? We have a saying back in the Caribbean, I don't know whether you have it here as well, that your own lice bite hardest. Three. Asking forgiveness of someone you hurt or forgiving someone who hurt you is extremely difficult. Four, to forgive and to be forgiven can be extremely freeing. Has anybody ever received forgiveness? Very freeing. Here is the question that we are going to be answering today. When people who belong to the same church family hurt each other, what responsibility does the offended, the offender, and the church leadership have in the matter? Let me ask that question again. When people in the same church hurt each other, what responsibility does the offender, the one who caused the offense, the offended, the one who was hurt by the offense, and the church leadership, what do they have to do in the matter. This morning's story has three main characters, a king and two of his servants. It is a three-part story. And so the first part of the story is about a servant who had incurred a humongous debt against his master to the tune of millions of dollars in our currency, if you will. In the second part of the story, his master mercifully forgave him his debt when he begged his master for mercy. The final part of the story is about how the forgiven servant, the one who had been forgiven, shamelessly handled the debt of somebody else who owed him far less than what he was forgiven of. But before Jesus tells this story, he is going to first teach us a lesson about how interpersonal conflict within the church should be handled. And so Jesus' lesson will prompt Peter, as he hears this lesson, it will prompt him to ask Jesus a mathematical question. How many times am I supposed to forgive somebody who offends me? And then Jesus will illustrate for Peter what real forgiveness is supposed to look like. And so we turn to St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, and I will read from, verses, from verse 15 through verse 35 as you follow either in your Bibles, on your phones, or on the screen behind me. Jesus himself speaking, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, 
take one or two others along with you that every word, I'm sorry, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, don't have anything to do with them after that. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, Greg, here it comes. Greg reminded me this week that when we pray, we ought to be doing that. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And we just did that here, agreeing together for the thing that we needed God to grant to us. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, when I was growing up, we were reading from the King James Version, and the King James Version says 70 times seven. So we literally took that to mean 70 times seven, which is 490 times. The Greek, however, is about 77 times. Anyway, however you take it, it means you have to forgive them a lot of times. That's what it means. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. In other words, have mercy on me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have Patience, have mercy with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, this is a part in this service where we desperately need for you to take over. Take these words and make them yours. Speak through your servant with clarity. Give to each of us hearts of understanding and obedience. Let great things be accomplished as a result of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
no one is immune to either grace or sin. Maybe I should have said it the other way around. No one is immune to either sin or the grace that forgives sin. Let me ask you this question. Why are so many people afraid to join a church? I'm sure I'm probably talking to many of you this morning who attend the church, but you are not a member of any church. So the question is, why is it that people are sometimes so afraid and so reluctant to join a church? I believe I know what the answer is. I believe it is because they know that church life is downright messy. There are too many conflicts. There are too many possibilities of getting hurt in the process. There are too many broken relationships that we don't quite know how to fix. There are too many hypocrites, some would say, that are in the church, all of which are byproducts of sin. Jesus refers to sin in this passage, and the definition of which I understand is to use an archery term, missing the mark. And so, in fact, if you join Brown's Chapel or any other church, this is for certain. You will end up either hurting someone in the church or you will get hurt by someone in the church. That's just a given. How do I know that? Because we all still occasionally miss the mark. We're still capable of sinning against one another. Only perfect people do not sin against one another. And since the church is a bunch of imperfect people, we can only expect that sinning against one another will happen from time to time. And so when Jesus said, verse, 13, verse 15, I'm sorry, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you will have gained your brother. When he says that, I believe what, that Jesus is saying two things. One, don't let it take you by surprise when your brother, or your sister for that matter, sins against you. Secondly, I believe he was also saying, don't forget that you, the offended person, have an obligation in the matter as well. And so you're going to find in this passage that Jesus sets the bar high and low at the same time. Let me say it in the reverse order. He sets the bar low as well as high at the same time. He sets the bar low because all people, even church people, even Christians, sin occasionally. Now, this is not an excuse. This is reality. But there is something called grace, which someone defines as God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace means God extending riches to us at the expense of his son, Jesus Christ. That's grace. And so no matter how low in sin we sink, God's grace can reach under us, it can lift us up, it can erase the debt of our sin, and it can free us from the guilt of sin. That is the beauty of this thing called grace. And God extends it to us freely. That's how low the bar is that Jesus set. But Jesus also sets the bar very high in this passage because 
everyone who has received grace from God in terms of forgiveness must extend it to others as well, particularly others within the same church. So when people in the same church family hurt each other, again, the question is this, what responsibility does the offender, the offended, and church leadership have in the matter? I think the response to that is this, that the only way through interpersonal hurt that the sin that sin causes is for us to hit the bull's eye. That is another archery term. So we have dealt with missing the mark, which is that you, you don't really hit the bull's eye. And we're now using another term, which is hitting the bull's eye. What I believe that means in this context is that we must resolve the issue. We must seek reconciliation. We must not let the matter go unaddressed. We must not let it fester into resentment. We must not let the relationship remain broken. We must not pre pretend that the offense did not happen. What we must do is that we must do our best to hit the bull's eye by resolving the issue of interpersonal conflict. I notice it's gotten very quiet in here. It's okay. We can relax. I have no agenda in this except to tell you what God's word is saying. And I believe that what Jesus is talking about here is actual verifiable sin that a brother or sister commits against you. He's not talking about hearsay. He's not talking about some allegation. He's not talking about your own perception of something. He's talking about something that is actual and verifiable. And so the Greek word that he uses for sin is hamartano, which means to miss the mark. It means that you failed to hit the target. It means that you failed to achieve the intended result. And some, when someone's actions toward you misses the mark and ends up hurting or offending you, the only way to deal with it, Jesus says in this passage, is by personally confronting the offender to resolve the issue. And let me ask this question. Whose responsibility is it to take the first step in the matter? Jesus says the responsibility is with you, the offender. You, the aggrieved person. Now, this is a hard teaching, isn't it? Because it goes against the grain of what our culture has conditioned us to expect. We think that the burden is on the offender to come to us with an apology. Jesus says the burden is on the offended to go to the offender privately. The only two persons who should be at that meeting are the offender and the offended. You, the offended person, must go to the offender in order to address the issue, to make him or her aware that their actions hurt you. Now, you are not responsible for how they handle it or for how they respond to it. You are only responsible, you're only responsible for making sure that the meeting happens just between the two of you. If they listen to you and they agree with you that they have been hurt or they have hurt you 
and they take responsibility for their actions, Jesus says, you will have gained them. In other words, you will have repaired the breach between the two of you. You would have reconciled the issue. Now, according to Jay Adams, whenever your sin brings harm to a relationship, it is never enough to say, I am sorry or I apologize, as we love to do. Jay says, to say I'm sorry is to dodge doing what God has commanded. In other words, when you say I'm sorry, you're just going around the bush. You're not necessarily hitting the bullseye. You're not dealing with the issue. The biblical response, he says, is to say, I am guilty, which is to take responsibility for what you did. I have sinned. Will you forgive me? That is what we do, whether it is with our spouses, with our children, with others in the church, with whoever. I take responsibility. I offended you. I am sorry. I sinned. Will you forgive me? That is the biblical response, according to Jay Adams. Now, all of us, you and I, who have occasionally had to go to someone and do that, we know that that is extremely difficult. It is difficult because there is the likelihood that even if it was well-intended, there is the likelihood that it would be received the wrong way. There is the likelihood that it could end up worsening the situation. To many of us, however, we stay at level one, which is to approach the person thinking that we have done our part and then we walk away if the issue was not resolved. But Jesus says that's only step one. There is a step two. If that doesn't work, what you do is that you get two other believers with you and you take them to confront the person and you make sure that reconciliation happens at level two. And if that do still doesn't happen, what you do is that you take it to the church. You bring it to church leadership. You don't broadcast it in church on a Sunday morning like this and say, well, look what Mike did to me and you go into all the details and stuff. No, you take it to church leadership, to the pastor, to the board members, to ministry leaders, and you say, you, you try somehow to get the issue resolved. That's level three. Now, it is only when that level of intervention fails that you're free to say, well, okay, I've done all that I could in the matter. Let me walk away from it. And so when Peter hears this teaching by Jesus, difficult as this teaching is, he comes to Jesus with a math question. And his math question is this, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? In other words, is there some limit to my forgiveness? Is there some limit that I can put on this thing called forgiveness? And so if I've already forgiven someone six times, and then they come and offend me the seventh time, is that okay with you if I'd simply said I won't forgive anymore? And Jesus respond in, responds in verse 22 and says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. In other words, Peter, forgiveness must be like a long rope that extends further than where you think it should go. And so many of you, you walked in this morning and you saw this rope and you wondered whether Pastor Theo was going to hang himself on it or hang somebody else on it. No, I assure you that none of that was the case. It was simply to create a vivid lesson for us this morning that even when we come to the end of a rope 
forgiveness still extends beyond that. That's hard. Especially if you have been offended time after time after time. Now, I'm not saying that you enable people. People must be held accountable for their actions. But I think we're going to find as we look at Jesus' teaching that he knows what he's talking about when he says forgiveness must extend even beyond the rope that we think that we have. And so to illustrate what forgiveness looks like, Jesus follows up this mathematical answer by a mathematical question by Peter by telling a made-up story. It's not a true story. It didn't really happen. It's a story that he made up to teach an important lesson. So this story essentially shows, I think, the difference between how we act when we need forgiveness from God and how we treat others when they need forgiveness from us. This story, if it illustrates one thing, it, it illustrates that. That when we need God's forgiveness, we think that God's forgiveness should extend longer than this rope. But then when we need to extend forgiveness to others, we think that there is a limit to the number of times we should forgive. And so the story that Jesus tells is a story about debt. It is a debt that one servant owed his master. It was an enormous debt. And so I'm told that one talent of gold is the equivalent of 20 years wages. One. And this servant owed his master a thousand talents. So that's 20 years times a thousand. You go and do the math there. The essential thing then is that this, there's no way possible for this servant to have paid off that debt in his lifetime. It was going to take many lifetimes for this debt to be extinguished. And so since he couldn't pay it, the master ordered that his family members be sold. All his possessions were to be sold off and the debt be repaid that way. And so the only thing that could save this servant now was the mercy of the master. And he quickly asks for it. Now, it is not difficult for us to see ourselves in the story, is it? It's not just a story that Jesus tells. It's not just a story about a servant. It's a story about us. And it's very easy for us to see ourselves in the story. Stan, again, you helped me to illustrate this beautifully. This happens in marriage time after time, doesn't it? Or is, does it only happen to me and you, Randy? Okay. Wow. Then, yeah, it seems like these, seems like these folks have excellent marriages and we probably don't. So it's not difficult to see ourselves in the story. It's not difficult for us to see that we have accumulated a debt that we could never repay either in money or in works. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much you work in the church or in parachurch organizations, no matter how many good things you do, you could never in your lifetime repay this debt that you owe the ultimate master who is Jesus. And so like a credit card that we use to make purchase after purchase after purchase without being able to pay it off at the end of the month and then you have thousands of dollars in interest that you've accumulated, 
We've racked up a huge sin debt ourselves. Everything that we've done to offend Jesus has accumulated that debt. We could never repay it. And so we had no choice but to cry out to God and to beg him for mercy. And God did, in fact, have mercy on us, didn't he? Because what he did was that he placed our sin debt, which we could not repay, he placed it on Jesus, who erased our sin debt with his blood. And then he sent us on our way free as a bird that was released from its cage, free as a prisoner that was released from prison. Free as a slave that was released from slavery. Free to go on our way singing. My chains are gone, we just sang. My, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns unending love, amazing grace. Freedom of this grace, this free grace that was extended to us, that has brought freedom to us. But then the story changes dramatically, doesn't it? Because in verse 28 of our text, when that same servant who had been forgiven this humongous debt to the tune of millions of dollars, he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. I'm told that a denarii is simply one day's wage. And so a hundred denarii would be like three months' wages. Remember that this, this first servant had owed a debt of 20 years' wages times a thousand. And now he meets somebody who owes him a mere three months' wages. And so he seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, let me ask you this question. What is the first emotion that you feel toward this forgiven servant? Isn't it anger? Aren't you upset? Aren't you angry if you have any sense of justice at all? Aren't you angry that this man who has been forgiven of so much now meets somebody who owes him so little and he has a difficult time forgiving him? This is cruel. Cruel, shameful, and you can find any number of adjectives and synonyms to describe him. But Jesus is trying to teach us something here, and what he's trying to teach us is that no matter what sin a fellow servant, a brother or sister, commits against you in this life, and no matter how deeply that sin may have hurt you and affected you, it cannot compare to the debt that you owed Jesus. Cannot compare. And he mercifully and freely forgave you of that debt. And so if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, no, we're not in heaven, we can only imagine, as the song says, but if you really want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus says, it is like a master freely forgiving his servant of a debt that he could never repay in this life. It is like a creditor freely canceling his debt 
rather than throwing him, his wife, and his children in prison. It is like a master freely extending grace to a servant who doesn't deserve grace. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Freely means then without price and without works. You can't pay for it and you can't work for it. The only thing that can save you is the mercy and grace and forgiveness of the master who, when you repent, extends it to you. And so you must ask for forgiveness. Here's our third point, and our final point, by the way. Or is it? Forgiven people have an obligation to their offender. Forgiven people have an obligation to their offender. Jesus says, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Now, why does Jesus call him a wicked servant? Prior to this, he was only a servant. Now he is a wicked servant. He doesn't call him a wicked servant because he had sinned, but because he failed to forgive somebody who hurt him. That is what makes him a wicked servant, Jesus says. And so when you've been forgiven of millions, millions of dollars worth of debt, you have an obligation to forgive others of their $100 worth of debt. Now this should be a no-brainer to any of us. And yet, forgiven people are the hardest people on earth to forgive. Am I the only person that fits that bill? Why is it that forgiven people, people who, are, who have been forgiven of so much, why is it that we have such a hard time forgiving? I believe I know what the answer is. Because, you see, forgiven people seldom take the time to let the magnitude of God's grace and the magnitude of his forgiveness really sink in. Notice here in our text that this servant, this wicked servant, he had scarcely left the scene of his forgiveness than he meets somebody else who owes him less. He had not taken the time to appreciate just how much he had been forgiven. He should have taken the time. He should have let, let the depth of the master's mercy really sink in. As this song instructs us to do, think about his love, it says. Think about his goodness. Think about his grace that brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. Think. Appreciate the depth of God's forgiveness for you, of you. Here's the second reason why I think we find it hard to forgive. Forgiven people fail to realize that we are all debtors. We all offend, don't we? It is not just the one who sins against us who offends. We also are offenders. And so just as we constantly need the master's forgiveness, so our fellow servant constantly needs our forgiveness. And so to forgive, I'm sorry, to not forgive, and this is our final point, I promise you. To not forgive is to not be forgiven. 
I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning. I know that this particular point is a hard one. In some ways, it is almost presumptuous of me to say it, but it is true. And they're not my words, they're Jesus' words. He says, to not forgive is to not be forgiven. That's what we learn from this story. That when forgiven people refuse to extend forgiveness to someone else who needs it, it not only brings grief to the heart of the master, but the master's grief turns to anger, which makes him visit the same punishment on the forgiven servant as he had unmercifully inflicted on the one who owed him less. That's a mouthful which is simply to say that when we fail to forgive, what the debtor owed us, the punishment of the debtor is, in, is visited on us. The very thing that we need from God most is withheld from us because we fail to extend it to others. And what we need most from God is mercy, don't we? We need it constantly. This is what Jesus says. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And so here's the bottom line of our message this morning. Forgiveness is a three-way street. Because you see, we need God's forgiveness, vertical. We need the brother's forgiveness, horizontal, and we also need to extend forgiveness to the brother. It's a three-way street. Here are the application points, first of which is this. Ask God to grant you forgiveness. I believe that we all have at least three things in common with the forgiven servant whom Jesus renamed the wicked servant. First, we always need God to forgive us of some debt that we have accumulated along the way. We've accumulated this debt so long that we could never repay. Now, I don't need to tell you what your debt is. You know what it is. I know what my debt is. But God's challenge to you this morning is to beg him for mercy just as this Wicked servant, who was first called the forgiven servant, just as he begged his master for mercy, is the same way that he teaches us that we need to beg God for mercy because we offend him time and time again. Ask him. Even though you know you don't deserve it, ask him anyway. He will give it. Ask him to cancel your sin debt because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. You will find that he's always more willing to extend it than you are to ask him for it. But ask him anyway. And let forgiveness flow from God's heart to your heart. And so I want to ask you this morning, is there some person here this morning who knows that he or she needs to ask God for mercy. He will grant it. He's more willing to give it than you are to ask him for it. I'm told that at the conclusion 
of her lesson on forgiveness. A Sunday school teacher turned to her students and asked them, Can any of you tell me what you must do before you can obtain forgiveness of sin? And after she asked that question, there was somewhat of a long pause, and this little boy from the back of the room finally spoke up and said, Sin. And I know that you didn't really quite catch it or you would laugh. That's obviously not the answer that the teacher was looking for. The answer she was looking for is for you to ask. You must ask before you get it. Now, it is true that before you can be granted forgiveness, you must sin. <laughs> right? So the little boy was correct, but you also need to ask. You need to ask. So again, I ask you this morning, is there one person here who needs to ask God for forgiveness? Go ahead and do it. He will grant it. Secondly, you must go to a fellow servant who has wronged you and release them from their sin debt to you. And so here's the second thing that we all have in common with the forgiven servant whom Jesus renamed the wicked servant. The other thing that we have in common with them is that you have had somebody in this church hurt you by some sin they committed against you in the past. Maybe it was recent. Maybe it was not so recent. And that sin has put a strain on your relationship. You may not even be speaking to each other, although you are attending the same church. So God's challenge to you this morning is to go to that person privately, just the two of you, just the two of you. You're not going with any accusation. You're not going to make them feel bad about themselves. You're simply going to make them aware that what they said about you or what they did to you in the past hurt you. It's all you're doing. And then when that happens, there should be accountability. And then let forgiveness flow freely in both directions, from the heart. Anybody here this morning that needs to do that? The Holy Spirit can help you to do that. Can give you the courage to do that. Don't pretend that it didn't happen. Don't let it stay there and fester into bitterness. It will hurt the church eventually if it does. But if you do it, there's so much freedom that is going to come from that and so much blessing, not only to you, but to the church as well. Here's a third and final application point. Go to a fellow servant that you have wronged and ask them to release you from your sin debt to them. So here's the final thing that you have in common with the forgiven servant whom Jesus renamed the wicked servant. It is that you may have sinned against a brother or sister by something you did to them in the recent past or in the not-so-recent past. Or you may be withholding forgiveness from them as a result for something that they did to you in the past. And so God's challenge to you this morning is that you must go to that person and either ask 
for their forgiveness or grant them yours. And again, let forgiveness flow freely in both directions from the heart. I'm going to ask you this morning, in this very quiet space, in this quiet time, not to dismiss church just as usual. If there was ever a time in church that I wanted to challenge you to really do something, to respond to this message, it would be this message. I don't know why the Holy Spirit gave me this particular message. I am too recent and too new at Brown's Chapel to really understand the inner workings and the history. But I just know that this church is not unlike other churches. And I just know that there is sometimes some internal work that needs to happen before we can see the blessings and the revival and the growth and all the exciting things happen. We have to do some groundwork before the Holy Spirit pours out his generosity and his blessings upon us. And so I'm asking you this morning, just quietly bow your heads. And if the Holy Spirit is impressing on you anything in particular that you need to do, I am going to ask you to obediently respond. There is more at stake than you recognize. There's something that God wants to do not only in you, but in Brown's chapel. And you may be the one that is holding up God from doing that. And so in the quiet of these moments, I'm going to pray. And if the Holy Spirit asks you to do anything, I'm going to ask you to respond to it. Let us pray. God, I'm not even sure that I need to pray. I just know that the Holy Spirit is able to speak. He's able to speak in the quietness of this room. And so, we will just quiet our hearts for a few moments before you. Holy Spirit, as a pastor of this church, I want to stand in the gap this morning on behalf of your people. And I want God to offer myself to you on their behalf. I want to ask this morning, God, that there, if there are grievances in this church with one another, offenses that haven't been settled, wrongs that haven't been righted, Things, dear God, that have been left to fester and to create animosity and bad blood. I want to bring those things to you this morning on behalf of your people and to ask God that your blood would come and cleanse us as a people and as a church. That you, Lord God, would remove from amongst us the hurt and the pain that has been suffered and God, that you would create within this church the freedom that allows the Holy Spirit to move at will. I pray, God, that reconciliation would happen, 
I pray, God, that forgiveness would flow. I pray, Heavenly Father, that love would abound and that your perfect will would be expressed in this body. God, maybe after we leave here or even before we leave here, someone will need to seek someone out. Maybe when we go home, a husband may need to seek a wife out. A wife may need to seek a husband out. Parents may need to seek children out and to say, I have sinned. I wronged you. Would you forgive me? And God, I pray that your blessing would flow not only in our church, but in our families, in our relationships. For the glory of God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.